Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. O barquinho vai, a tardinha cai, o barquinho vai. We are now in the studio with a couple of very special guests for this 100th show. I moved to London almost six years ago, and before that, a year before that, I came here for the first time as a tourist. I stayed a couple of weeks in London, going to gigs every day. I've seen lots of different bands. I've been around quite a lot, I would say. And it was incredible. It was one of the things that made me want to move to London, seeing bands and seeing live music. And I've been to a weekender at the Lock Tavern, where I saw... 15, 16 bands, lots of bands in three days. And one of them was Shame. And this was one of the best gigs I've seen and the best gig of the the time I spent here. I think it was just incredible to see these guys live, their raw energy, and it was full of life. It was very much alive. I went back to Rio. I used to work at a music venue, I would say the most important music venue in Brazil, one of the most influential music venues that's been around for over 40 years. And it was a pretty great job, but I was 29, I was about to turn 30, and I always leave everything for later. I don't know what to do in life, I'm always procrastinating. And I thought, wow, shit, I have the chance to move to London. I had a couple of friends living here. I have Italian citizenship. And thinking about all the gigs I've seen, I thought that it would be good. And also the city is, is great. No violence like Rio. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite on the same level. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about the bands and everything, the scene here, and maybe what I could do. I don't know. I have never envisioned me. Is that a verb? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the yeah. future. And I thought, Shit, if I don't move to London now, I will be here in Rio forever. I don't know. I don't know what's life going to be like, but... Sunny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I know that the bands I've seen, and especially Shame, were very much responsible for giving me courage and uh, horizon. Like, yeah, I think that moving to London is a good idea. I'm really honored to have you here. It's very special to have you here. Good to be here. Muito obrigado. <laughs> the band means a lot. And yeah, since I've moved here, I had the chance to see you releasing the three of your albums, the Rough Trade gigs, always incredible, and other places as well. 
So it really means a lot to have you here. So a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Yeah, cheers, mate. Well, long introduction. But <laughs> <laughs> the best kind. Yeah. Yeah, you have just released Food for Worms, Indeed, your third yeah. album, your third album on that Oceans label. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd like to start the chat talking about the beginnings of the band, how you got together, how you've known each other for many years. Many, so many years. Yeah. The, the five of you, like for more than 20 years? or I mean, collectively, but yeah. I mean, yeah, individually, we met each other at slightly different points, but like me and Charlie, the drummer, I've known him for the vast, vast majority of my life <laughs> since we were very, very young. But I guess we, we started when we were when we were 16 uh, and we had this this crazy long summer after you do your GCSE exams in the UK. You get this like... It was, a, it was AS level. Oh, yeah, but it's like, what? It's a yeah. crazy long summer. It's like 12 weeks or something stupid like that. So that we were left with a lot of time. A couple of us had always had the idea of getting a band together and then I brought Charlie Forbes into the mix, introduced him to the rest of the guys. Mm. And we had this space above the Queen's Head pub in Brixton where we were lucky to be able to rehearse for free at very antisocial hours. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so I guess it kind of started from there. And by the end of that summer, we were doing shows. We were kind of on the circuit. At the Queen's Head, what did you use to play? Like you already were writing songs or did you did mostly covers? Were you... We were like, writing from the start, really. I think yeah. one Rizzler, we wrote that in either our first or second rehearsal session together. Yeah. yeah. We uh, we never really did cut. We did one, I think New Rose was an idea to cover it, but we never did that. The only the cover... Yeah. yeah we, we only ever did one cover, which was a song I found on YouTube, which was called... Uh, you we, you were so young by the cigarettes and I never knew the lyrics either. So just make it up on the shows. But I think our first show we did... First ever gig after being a man for like two weeks. One Rizzo was on there. And then three other songs that uh, we don't play anymore. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what bonded you in music? What Did you used to show songs to each other, albums? Did you yeah. gather around together <clears throat> to listen to records? I think I think what, what bonded us at that time was that we had relatively similar tastes. Um, and it was at a time where, you know, it, teenagers weren't really listening to guitar music. Mm. It was kind of a like semi-nostalgic thing. Uh, and it was just kind of not what people were doing. So we kind of, you know, I guess that brought us together in a musical sense. And we'd always been friends. So it kind of made sense to, to start something. Yeah, I think Eddie and Forbes were aware of like current bands at yeah, that time, we, which would be like Palmer Violets. Yeah, back like then, that. back then, Forbes and I used to go to used to go to shows all the time. Um, remember what we went to a really great show, which actually Steen was there for. It was mm. at the, it was at the Queen's Head. It was King Cruel, Fat White Family, Childhood, and Jerk Cub. Mm. And th I think that was a pretty that was a really important gig. That would have been what like February twenty fourteen. Um, and I think that was like, a, all right, cool. These are some people in our sort of area from the same sort of community that we're from doing something that we want to do. So that was quite inspiring, I guess. That's yeah. the year when the band started. That is the year when the band started, yeah. Yeah, we started every yeah, it was, uh, it was that, that time. But that was like the first gig that I'd ever like been to that wasn't at like Brixton Academy, yeah. or, like a really <clears> big <throat> venue or whatever. I was like, whoa. Because the only person I knew who was current at that time was King Crawl, which is why I went along. But I'd never heard of Childhood or Fat Whites and it was such a good night. It was yeah, really it was good. brilliant. Four years later, you released Songs of Praise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How was the process until that to 
get the songs together, writing songs. We had to finish school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we finished, we were, we were gigging all the time and then uh, we, we finished school and around that time was when the Queen's Head, the pub that we started the band at, closed down. And then I did a year in art school and everyone else was just sort of working jobs and stuff like that and we just continued and we had our management from very, very early on uh you know who we're still with and you know the advice was just sort of like let's play shows let's lock it in so we were going on these sort of support tours and doing that and yeah and then it got to a stage where we moved into another practice room called dropout in camberwell run by jason and candy two good friends of ours that also went but at the time you know we had no money we were kind of like blagging it but there was this sort of just like real drive it was all we wanted to do you know um but yeah we just sort of after a while, we managed to have all the songs together. Yeah, I mean, it, we had we were afforded so much time for that album. You know, it was one of the, the the first song we ever wrote was the first single from that album. So yeah, it was a long journey, and it, I think it was quite formative because you know you learn a lot going on your first few tours. You learn the reality of the industry. You learn, you know, you have to look after yourself and things like that. But yeah, it was a long, long, quite chaotic four years. And did you already play any instruments before getting the band together, or you decided to start a band and hey, I need to learn guitar now? No, or... we'd all we'd all already played our instruments. Um, but actually, that said, Josh Josh is really truly a drummer, and he'd never really he he, he he's a good guitarist and always has been. But like his main instrument was the drums, and we invited him down to the practice, and he was like, "Oh wait, so I'm on bass," and we were like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Oh, I don't really like playing bass." We we're like, "Oh come on, it'll be fine." So yeah, that's why he's always trying to run away. Yeah, from yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nearly a decade later, he's still on bass. And your live gigs, when you started playing, did it change anything in you, like in matters of confidence or being exposed on stage to other people? How did you feel that thrill or not to being on stage? What changed you? If I guess anything it did. It kind of like, <clears throat> it's obviously a very exposing experience. So it like, you start thinking about things more like in insecurities might pop up that you didn't know were there before. Um, <clears throat> I think we kind of, it, it made us want to be better at our instruments for sure when we started out because you were always comparing yourself to other people on the lineup. And we were always like by far the youngest and most inexperienced band on most lineups we played. So I think there was an element of that, like wanting to kind of get your shit together on a live on a sonic and performance basis but also like image and the nervousness i would i played our first few gigs like with my back to the audience i would just be like looking away sort of thing um but yeah i mean i guess it's just it, you have to learn so quickly you you can't sort of leave anything to chance when it comes to a live gig because otherwise it's just the most embarrassing experience ever and i think we learned that probably the hard way you know we would turn up to shows with nothing <laughs> like barely any equipment and be like oh can't we just use like your stuff it's like, it doesn't work like that so i think it made us kind of a little bit more savvy at just organizing ourselves and yeah i guess maybe we did we start dressing differently i don't <laughs> I, don't, I think it was also you know definitely for the first year or whatever it's you just learn the importance of rejection you yeah. know and sort of that uh, you know, we'd just be playing to people who weren't interested in the music or didn't like it. And, you know, our friends have always been very supportive, but for a lot of them, it's not necessarily their type of music. At that time, it was more sort of, you know, about like garage and techno and stuff like that. 
but it's I guess that kind of teaches you that you know if you want to do something then you just have to kind of keep going and if other people aren't interested or other people don't necessarily like it that does, you know you just have to move past that but yeah I think you know like you know we're always sort of referenced being like the live show is like where we started and stuff like that and I think that's where you learn about all the mistakes that are mm. going to happen you know like a mic's going to cut out or a guitar amp will stop working during the show and it's about how you work around that did you get any support from your parents like were they okay with you being in not in the bands. beginning <laughs> i think it was it, it was different for all of us like because for me like i've always played guitar growing up i was it was always like what i wanted to do more than anything else i was always in like you know school talent shows things like that they kind so, of gave up like oh yeah well i think i think my parents particularly they like they knew they were like okay we're not gonna win if we try and then also they were they were keen they were up for it i think when they came to our first show they were like all right you know what you're proficient enough at this let's let's give it a go so thankfully it kind of worked out <laughs> so otherwise yeah. we can't we had to we were at a really sort of pivotal point in our lives where we had to decide are we gonna do this properly or are we gonna go to university and still try to sort of like have a patchwork band going uh, and i'm pretty glad we decided not to go to university because i don't think it was for us as individuals i don't think it was necessarily for us no ir irrespective of the band in the background and yeah. yeah i think some of our parents were a bit like nervous about it but you know what it's like with parents like you get you get your first big article and they're like oh that's great wow well done and you know then came like record deal things like that so their, yeah. their, their concerns were temporary let's let's put it that way It was it was more so just with the school thing. Like my parents got called in a lot <laughs> to yeah. have conversations. Steen was a, Steen was a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more just that. But it was fin you know, I think, yeah, like Eddie says. It's it's that you know, my mum says that now, you know, I would never wait, you know, I've I had a big problem with being late for school all the time, and that's why they always getting called in and stuff like that. And that was you know, as my mum said, it was just like I would wake up if we were gonna, you know, to do press or, you know, wake up early if we had a gig or anything like that, but I just wouldn't wake up for school. So I think they could tell that this is what I wanted to do. And you used to listen to music all the time. Was it yeah. a big thing for you? Or? Yeah, it was massive. I think uh, I got, you know, I got a vinyl player, record player when I was like 11 or something like that. So it was really cheap, crappy ones or whatever. And then my mum and dad just had all of their vinyl so I was always listening to that and I was always being shown it you know my mum was kind of like Dylan and Beatles etc and stuff and my dad was like Django Reinhardt and Tony Bennett and Billy Holiday and stuff so it was nice and then when we started the band and we met all the people at the Queen's Head and stuff that was when we would discover like the Stooges properly and uh, the Fall and bands like that you know and, and that was uh, amazing as well and how how important were venues like the Queen's Head and Windmill Brixton in your formation as a band, in your in your development. I mean, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to under understate the. It's impossible to overstate the importance of the windmill, particularly the Queen's Head for us was amazing, and we we formed there, and we we were given a space to craft our songs from for free, but then as we became a little bit more proficient and. Good old, good old Tim Perry, booker and promoter of the windmill, mm. saw fit to keep booking us for shows. I, yeah, it, it's, it's, it was so valuable the experience we got there, and I think just the the community surrounding the venue is what keeps people coming back. There truly is nowhere else like it in the UK, um, where you can go in and see a completely eclectic lineup every single night of the week. Um, 
it's accessible for everyone and it's just yeah it's, there's not there aren't enough ways in which i can describe the importance of the windmill and they let us do it all underage as well don't worry about that <laughs> yeah it was it's great to see this thing like being from rio we don't have places like this mm. we have like mm. one venue or two venues in rio that are 400 people or mm. kind of around that we were talking about some venues in sao paulo but mm -hmm. alto and yeah it, it's hard in brazil i would say and rio is a big city there mm -hmm. and it seems as well from from what we sort of know about it as well you know sao paulo is where a lot of you know the band like uh you know musicians are from there and stuff like that and feels like it feels like a lot of festivals might happen in rio like on the beach and stuff like that but with sao paulo it seems like you know we've never really played in rio we've just been we've just been through there but yeah yeah, in Sao Paulo. Interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, please, you're here to do that. But in, in Sao Paulo, it feels more like a cultural city mm. in a way. I mean, not taking the cultural side of Rio, but in Sao Paulo's got more structure. Yeah, it, it felt like you know everyone in the audience. Whenever we played in Sao Paulo, is like a proper fanatic. You know, there's that. Yeah, they, they knew the lyrics. And they just—they are just extremely passionate about music. I don't, yeah, obviously, I can't compare that to Rio, but it's—it's it's definitely so unique playing to a Sao Paulo crowd. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, you developed a good relationship with Brazil. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, we, we, we like we, love we like it a lot. You did the T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the it's the best, man. <laughs> That's funny. Now moving on to food for worms. Mm -hmm. What changed? in these years like where do you see yourselves now after like almost 10 years from the beginning of the band and now releasing our third album each album by a different producer mm -hmm. you've grown mm. i hope so <laughs> <laughs> what did the road bring to you being on tour and meeting people and traveling the world did that reflect on the album as well yeah i mean i guess it's there have been countless lessons learned over the years um, and, you know, so much sort of musical development just through spending the last decade or so, you know, creating music together. I think with every album we release, that kind of opens up another avenue, another another pathway that we want to go down and explore. And I think particularly with this one, in in comparison to the previous two albums, this record kind of acknowledges imperfections a lot more and it's... Um, it's, just, it's it's a, to me it feels like a lot more of a kind of exposing vulnerable record than previous ones we put out because um, I think doing it completely live as well which is how we recorded it was just like it gives you an opportunity to really see each component of the song at face value and all the imperfections can count for something in themselves so hopefully that's translated but I don't know <laughs> mm. It kind of it kind of feels like as well. It's like we went back to the beginning, like all the stuff we've just been talking to you about, about like playing shows and stuff. These songs were written in the live environment, basically. You know, we went away for a week, wrote a load of songs, came back, and then just played them constantly at gigs. You had to do that, like for the for the windmill. Yeah, you, you, for mm -hmm. the the challenge idea when we spent a whole year just writing and not coming up with any songs, and um, and then this way it was basically you know it's like the approach we had for songs of praise, but in a much more concise manner. Mm -hmm. You know, it only took three months, but it was playing it at shows and seeing you know what bits worked, what bits didn't that give you or what bits might be needed, 
which gives you the idea of sort of how the songs should be written. So by the time we went into the studio, we were all pretty confident with them. You know, we kind of, with Drunk Tank Pink, we hadn't played a lot of them live. So you kind of have that self-conscious element of like, oh, will this work? Da -da -da -da. Do you know what I mean? Whereas we knew from the reactions that, you know, we, we just sort of thought, you know, we were confident with the structures and everything like that. Yeah, you released Drunk Tank Pink in January? Yeah. January 21, yeah. yeah. You, didn't, you didn't play much that... No, we barely... I mean, it was out for like six months before we even got to play a note live mm. properly. But I guess, yeah, that, it was such a different writing process with that because we, we wrote that in a studio environment, you know. Everything was kind of deconstructed. So by the time that album was recorded, we had to literally learn how to play the songs because we did it in a very fragmented way, which worked for the for the purposes of that record. So I guess it was nice it was nice with Food for Worms to be able to go straight into a studio with the songs mm. as they were going to turn out in the end. Um you know, the demos that we recorded ourselves for a lot of the Food for Worms tracks sound fairly similar to how they ended up sounding on, on record. Mm. Um And I think just being able to play them to people before we even went in to record the album was a really nice kind of test for us to because we you know we're the kind of band where we we kind of finish things on the go on stage so to get like the best kind of feedback the most accurate representation of people's feelings about your work was a really nice way to be able to go into an album process and you changed briefly the name i mean just as a I think <laughs> almost shameless almost shameless <laughs> yeah yeah in in honor of the guy behind windmill um, i guess yeah. in a way we, we we wanted to have an alias um but just just for fun more than anything else yeah and It's, we thought we thought almost shameless was funny because shameless from the windmill yeah shame us the band yeah and the film almost famous <laughs> yeah <laughs> three excellent things so <laughs> You did three gigs as almost shameless. Yeah, yeah. Two at Windmill and one at Moth Club. Well, oh, maybe we did, we did four. We did, one, we we did, did one, one down in Brighton yeah. as well. St. Oh, okay. Patrick's Day. That was fun. I think it's. Uh, I think as well. It's just like you know when when we I went on a press trip and it became apparent that like a lot of bands have been doing this before. You know, we know Black Midi do it as well, but you know, like even the Rolling Stones, their alias was the Free Chord Wonders, and they were when they were massive, they would just go and play in a 90 cap room somewhere in America or wherever they were on tour. And I think it just took all the pressure off. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like when you play your first shows as well, you know the songs aren't perfect, but there's no, again, pressure for them to, for, for them to be perfect. And you can just have people down and just sort of have some drinks or whatever and just sort of it's very low. And it was really fun and sort of I hope we do that in the future as well again. Yeah, It's a really nice way to play. And as almost shameless, you, you wrote the songs in one or two weeks? We wrote a lot of them, six yeah. or seven, six songs that are on Food for Worms. We wrote in it was five days, yeah. We, uh, but the core, the core of them, basically, yeah. So uh, when we were writing, like I say, it was it was for the live show. So you you just go like, okay, verse, okay, come on with the chorus, and then okay, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, okay, done, and then move <laughs> on. So it's like you think about the transitions or the ending. Like for example, like Josh Tadley wasn't there because he had COVID. So with Adderall, which was the first song we wrote when we when we got there. That was just, you know, that same structure. And then Josh came in with like the, the second half of the song, basically, now. So it's all those sort of, like, you know, details that when you have when you have the core of something, it's a lot easier to know, to figure out the sort of little bits that make the songs. 
yeah, when Josh was away, you picked up the bass too. He did. Yes, I I did it for I did the bass on Friday and then did the the notes for um, Burning by Design and then Max Golding, aka Sizzle, who was there recording them, came in and did like the rhythm and it was very very fortunate to have him because Max is multi instrumentalist and he's a good friend of ours and does our sound. And he could just kind of come in. And it also meant that not everyone was in the room at the same time, you know. It was weirdly before it was kind of like we hoped to just sort of like jam and get something out of it. Whereas this way it could be like, okay, two people work out a verse and a chorus and then the rest of the people come in and then you just do that. And then that's done in 20 minutes or something like that. It was, I think Adderall was 40 minutes and then, you know, it was all very quick. Do you play anything? Um, no, I mean, I've I, I got a guitar very kindly from Fender. Thank you, Dave Mulqueen. Uh, and he also gave me a bass as well, a writing bass. And I've been doing a lot of writing like that. But again, it's all very, you know, simple for, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not great at like, you know, I could just do downstrokes or whatever. I'm not good at rhythm necessarily, but it's more working about, uh, you know, getting a melody and just getting a general structure down for a song. But I've really enjoyed that, yeah. So when you picked up the bass when Josh was away, did it change your viewing of like writing a song or anything? Did it? Yeah, it makes me feel like an idiot for never doing it before. <laughs> it was, I was with, like I said, I was with Green from Fontaine's the other day and, I, and he was like, yeah, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's like, it's, uh, it, it seems insane. I mean, it makes so much sense, do you know? But what it is as well is that it's great if Sean or Eddie or someone's playing the guitar and I'm singing along to it, but I'm guessing when they're going to yeah. change and I don't know what they're going to change to. And also guitarists, obviously you're a guitarist, you're, you know, you're a musician. You, it's not interesting for you to play the same four chords over and over again for 10 mm. minutes uh, necessarily while you're trying to work out something. So I think that was more it. You control the pace um, and then, you know, naturally as well, I think on the bass, whatever I've been sort of writing at home, whatever you just, Uh, singing-wise, you're just sort of naturally playing in a sort of key or whatever that you can sing well in. It's been a year of revelations. All yeah, around. yeah. <laughs> It's been fun. And I've seen that this album, Food for Worms, is also about friendship. Yeah. And that's the thing that you can really feel on stage when you see the band. You see the five of you. I could sense that since the first gig I've seen that you are like a unit and mm -hmm. you admire each other and it's a beautiful thing to see. How is it to be with your friends on stage and touring around the world and being able to do what you love with friends and growing up with people you, you love? I mean, yeah, it's, it's great. It's the best thing ever. But like, I think what's particularly great about it is that because we know each other so well there's no kind of reservations there's very rarely any kind of need to sort of beat around the bush when it comes to an issue or something or like mm. you, you know just just the process itself we can be as matter of fact as we want with each other because we've known each other for that long then we don't you know no one takes things to heart too easily so i think just on a on, on a kind of logistical level that's really really handy i think this this uh, this tour we just did around the uk and europe um, was probably one of the best tours we've done. I mean, it was like six weeks as well and there wasn't a single argument. I think we're just at a stage now where, like Eddie says, you know, we've kind of... We know, you know, as well, when not to take the piss and sort of, you know, when to say sorry. And a lot of this album was, uh, you know, because we were all in the room together, all recording live, you have to sort of be 
you know, if you do have an argument, which is, you know, it's going to happen eventually if you put five people in a room together for four, sort of eight and a half years, um, <laughs> that you just need to sort of immediately get it off your chest. And, and it, again, you owe it to each other. That's the main thing. If you, you know, if you've woken up on the wrong side of the bed or something's happened, that's fine. But you just need to sort of express that, you know. You need to make people clear that, you know, you need to make it clear of how you're feeling or whatever. At pretty much at all times, otherwise everyone just holds it in. And I think everyone's been for a stage of like or a tour or something like that where you just sort of repress things and it never works out well. And does it reflect on lyrics? Yeah, um, I think I think massively, I think, you know, Uh, like I think anyone who writes lyrics it's your way of sort of understanding your day or your week or you know how you're feeling about someone uh, but like I say when like with the writing or whatever and you know when we came to write other songs I would ask Josh for like the layman notes the simple notes for the for the song on the bass and do that and it kind of that was interesting because you know I'd sort of voice memo or whatever whatever I was saying in that particular time And I liked the idea, again, you know, Eddie saying this record's about sort of embracing imperfections and stuff was that I don't want to be sat, you know, night after night in candlelight with my quill, you know. <laughs> um, Sounds great. Why not? <laughs> you know, for, for this one in particular, I think it's, um, I don't know, I think uh, all of those kind of things that could be better or whatever, whatever you chose to say in the moment when you weren't thinking or overthinking it. It's the purest form of it, and uh, and that's what I wanted to try and do, or whatever. But I find it hard to simplify. <laughs> for Food for Worms, the release of the album, you performed a few gigs with your fans on stage. Yeah, <laughs> those karaoke gigs with some covers as well. How did that come up, and how were the gigs? The gigs were great, and I think it it came about just wanting to kind of break out from the, you know very sort of robotic in-store sort of setup, which can get... You know, in-stores in are fun. Some people love them. I think for us, you know, we're on our third campaign now. We wanted to do something a little bit different. And, you know, any kind of audience engagement is going to be fun. But I think, you know, getting an audience <laughs> up to, like, sing one of our songs with us is, yeah, I, I had not seen that done before. So that was just a lot of fun. I think it's just nice to be able to give people something a little bit different to wrap around rather than just going to a show in a shop. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But like, because installs can be, you know, they, they can be tedious sometimes, especially when you're playing in like, obviously Rough Trade East is different, but when you're playing in like just a shop, mm -hmm. is this isn't a venue, like it doesn't work the same way. So I think it's just, not, it, it made it a little bit more of a like night out for people rather than like a listening party, you know? Yeah. So, and yeah, they, The, the general standard of singing was very high. I was, I was impressed. There was one person who signed up for every single song. So this meant they'd learned the lyrics to every, every single one that we wanted mm. to do. I think they did Lizzo. That yeah. guy doing Lizzo at Rough yeah, That was yeah, really yeah. wild. I was yeah. like, okay, the bar yeah. has been set high tonight. How was it to have fans on stage singing your own songs? Um, really funny. Yeah, it was, I think it was just really, it was quite wholesome. Yeah. Some people come in for Steen's job. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the singles of the albums, how do you pick up the singles and choose the songs that you're going to work? Like, this is going to be that 
the the way that we did this album was very good advice from Flood, who produced um, Food for Worms, which was, he was like, do not think of any of these songs as singles. He was like, it's the kiss of death. He was at the Moth Club gig. He was at the Moth Club show, yeah. Um, I mean, he agreed to do the album without listening to any of our demos. Uh, Respect. Just by, <laughs> just by seeing that gig. No, no not no, even. Not even. He Before just, that, he just he came was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. He just wow. came down and met us and had a chat, and then after 10 minutes, he was like, I want to do the album. Like, what do you think of the songs? He was like, I haven't heard a sausage. Um, <laughs> so he just said, you know, when we were recording, don't think of any of them as a single, and I think on Drunk Tank Pink, we'd had that mentality, and it does, it is kind of the kiss of death, because no song will ever be good enough. Mm. And it's overthought and overanalyzed and overworked on. And so we just waited until until the end of the album. I mean, we weren't even really clear on track listing until the end of recording even. Weren't really clear on track listing or anything like that. And then after we had everything recorded, we just had a meeting with management and we were like, okay, these three ones, it seemed pretty obvious. Six Pack was one that we wanted to have because it was, was kind of different to anything else on the album. And from playing it live it's just fun do you know what i mean it's not mm. super serious if we if we put out three quite serious singles we didn't want to have that perspective uh or sort of show that about the album but i think fingers of steel when josh put down the piano with the help of ed um who was working on the album as well mm -hmm. then i think we were like okay no this no this song should start the album And then uh, it felt like the right the right one for the first single as well but it was pretty it was pretty clear The track listing was really hard for this album. It was, yeah. It was really hard because it's quite mid-tempo for a lot of it. And we were like, where does, you know... And the, yeah, we were like, ah, shit. We've accidentally <laughs> written really slow songs. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I guess because like, previous records of ours has always been quite high intensity, quite fast. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, sort of knowing where to place these, these, these different songs was really difficult because you don't want it to feel like too much of a lull in momentum in the album. Um, yeah. But I guess Six Pack just kind of blew all that out of the water. So yeah. <laughs> stick that in the middle. <laughs> yeah. I think the mellowest song you've got is Visa Voucher. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one of the... I mean, like, I guess Adderall and stuff now are about that same sort of tempo and stuff. Um, but I think, you know, I think we hope this record is more melodic as mm. well. And... You know, every record we're learning, you know, different things on writing and recording and stuff like that. And I think now, I think the 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 thing I learned or from this one was definitely that when something is a bit slower, more mid tempo, you can find a melody quite a bit easier. But then you can also just speed that up after you found it. <laughs> so I think we want to on the next one. We uh we want to get some. But when we first demoed these. When we went away before we played the Wimble show, they were so slow. And you realize just by playing, you know, if you're in a room together and you're not playing the songs to anyone, you will just write a bit slower because mm. you haven't got that adrenaline that you have live. And uh, and that's a really important lesson. But I think we want to get some more fast ones for, for what we do next. So that wasn't like, let's do a slower songs. It just came out naturally. No, it just came completely just, naturally. Yeah. yeah, it just came naturally. And also we like, you know, Like we say, we recorded the album live. We, when you don't record an album live, you set a BPM before you start playing. So you kind of roughly guess how fast or how slow the song is going to be. And then you have to stick to that exact thing. Through playing it live, you make up how fast or how slow it is, depending on how tired you are <laughs> or how excited you are. Yeah. And they never have to sound live like they sound on the record. It's like the Ramones where the 
the live gigs are always faster. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think all we, gigs are pretty yeah. much. Yeah, we've started playing to a click for some songs live though, because mm. I think it's like with with songs that are a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more kind of, you know, on the emotional side of things, you don't you don't want to have those inconsistencies every night. So maybe having like something like a click for us kind of just safeguards the the vibe and tempo of the track live. But, mm. Not because I'm I'm usually all for kind of live imperfections and stuff like that, but sometimes you just kind of have to get it on a on a level, you know. I would like to also mention the album cover artwork. Mm-hmm. It was Marcel Zama. It yeah. was, yeah. How did the album cover came up? Well, it was a it was a pre existing piece of Marcel's. Um, okay. No, he he drew it for. Was it? Yeah, he oh. he Call, Callum, one of our managers, sent us over. It was also you know sent us over his artwork. And we were like, that looks great. You know, uh, it's really cool, interesting style. Callum got in touch with him. And I must have just seen something similar from another work of his, but yeah. Well, he, he came back with seven. He, he got in, you know, we got, our management got in touch with him and he was like, I heard them, I listened to them do a set on K... Uh, K... KCRW. KCR, no, not K, KCRW, which is a radio station in LA. And and he was like, and I really liked it. I'm down, and we sent him over the demos, and he came back with seven sketches without any color. And he said the colors I'm working with at the moment are mainly blue and yellow. And we were like, they all look wicked. And then he put color to all of them, and we went through, and it was pretty much when we decided on the singles, it was the artwork. We were like, okay, that's the front cover which mm-hmm. he had. There's the back cover. Then that's the single cover for Fingers of Steel, Six Pack, um, Adderall. That can be a tour poster. Um, it was amazing because usually, like, <laughs> and he did it all decisions. for free. He wow. did it all for free. Art, know, art, artwork decisions can can be like, like I'm pretty sure bands break up over stuff like that. Like it, it can be wild. But on this, it was like, like Steen said, "Cool, yep, like that, love that, love that, love that." <laughs> Done. It was it was the most painless joy of an experience. Yeah, <laughs> we um we uh we were doing it while we were recording the album as well. Which, is, if there's any advice we give to anyone or to ourselves again, is that get it done while you're recording because, like, with, it's easier to know when you're in the moment, you yeah. know, and w- when you don't have time to overthink it again. I mean, like, oh, maybe could they add on a balloon yeah. or something, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But it was, it was, you know, Marcel's. We 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 can't be yeah. more grateful. Eternally grateful to Marcel incredible artist yeah so he listened to the demos and came up with the art where he, you didn't send him any ideas no we were all that was the one thing we were in agreement over we'd all wanted to do we all wanted to do artwork for for the third album we'd had photography for the last two which was great but we wanted to do something different and if we'd again if we'd have sent over our thoughts one person would be like oh like painting another person would be like drawing another person would be like sculpture another person do you know what i mean like i'm thinking about mixed media with words and yeah. maybe add an elephant or something like that you know so we were just like just best to if someone's going to do artwork for us then we were just like just let them hear it and then whatever their whatever opinion they form of it themselves is yeah. what they can do it's like getting non-artists to kind of try and design a piece of art in their heads Mm. With four other people, it's not gonna. <laughs> yeah. mm. And you, Charlie, are a painter yourself. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done it for a while though, but I I love painting. Yeah. And you didn't ever do uh, an artwork for shame, not for shirts or any. Or, I did stuff. for I did for our first posters for the windmill and stuff like that. You it did was um, like Jesus Christ on a crucifix, but yeah. he's an octopus. You did you did Boulder's Gate. That was you, wasn't it? I did Boulder's Gate. Yeah, single gone we put fisting. out. Was you ages ago? Gone fisting. <laughs> no, that was Josh. Wasn't it? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, what's the gone fisting? Oh, like? wait, what? I can't even remember what that looks like. I can look for it here, but... No, the gone fisting one, yeah, I think I did that one. Uh, very, yeah. very different times. Yeah, very, very different times. <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, I, I really like it. But like I said, I went to Camwell, but I didn't. I did like two paintings in the whole year I was there. But when it was COVID, <laughs> you went in like three times. <laughs> when, when it was COVID, uh, yeah, that was what. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. But it's hard. I think I find it easier for myself to sort of fixate on one thing at a time. But you know, I like it. I, I bring my sort of drawing book as well. I really, it's a, it's a really nice thing to do. But I think what doing stuff for shame, or whatever, it would again have to be something similar where either it comes or it doesn't, or whatever. It happens naturally. I think you know that's the best way to do it. Mm. And you've brought us some songs. To yeah, listen to. we have indeed. Yeah. So we're gonna listen now to a mix by Shame, Charlie Sting, and Eddie. Thanks for bringing that. No worries. And, and thanks for being here. I'm gonna let you take over here, decide, and cool. you introduce the songs and sweet, wicked DJ. Let's do it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Here's Eddie from Shame here on Soho Radio for the show Barkino. Uh, this is the first of me and Charlie's picks today. This song is called Cooking and it's by Duster. Enjoy. 